started, uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the Advent, Wes Hill. Uh, Wes is uh, a professor at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, and uh, holds degrees from Wheaton College and Durham University in England. Uh, and uh, your major in college was ancient languages. Sure. You must have been a lot of fun uh, in, uh, in, in, in college. Uh, but we're delighted uh, for you to bring a word to us this evening. Uh, before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace and mercy, and uh, uh, by your blood, uh, you have made us uh, a family. And so, Lord, as we gather as brothers and sisters in you tonight, uh, that we would hear from you, that you would use Wes, and uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would uh, speak to us, and that this evening we might see Jesus. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Thanks, Anne. Sure. Sorry, Tucker. Well, thanks. Uh, it's, it's a joy to be back. I, I think this is my, let me make sure I'm hooked up here appropriately. There we go. Um, I think this is my fourth uh, visit to the Advent, and it's, it's very much feeling like home these days. So I, I'm delighted whenever I get an invitation to come back, and, and uh, a huge part of that is your hospitality and how, how wonderful it is to, to talk with so many of you and get to know many of you over, over the, the quieter moments. You know, there's the preaching, but then there's the conversations that happen over lunch and in the hallways and those things. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you for having me back and, and inviting me to speak on this theme that has become uh, very near and dear to me over the last few years on friendship. Uh, Gil uh, wrote to me and said, you know, could, could you uh, talk about friendship? Because this is something that we're thinking a lot about at the Advent. You know, how do we cultivate Christian friendship? How do we nurture it? How do we strengthen it? And uh, so I, I want to talk to you tonight about friendship as a gift and a challenge. And I, I sort of want to do this in, in, in three points, uh, so to speak. I want to talk about why we need friendship, um, what friendship is, and how we get it, how we cultivate it, how we find it. So why do we need it, uh, what is it, and how do we find it, how do we nurture it? Um, I, I remember getting to the end of my Ph.D., uh, as, as Andrew mentioned, I, I lived in England for a few years and worked on my PhD there. And I remember getting to the end of my PhD, I had decided that I was going to move to Pittsburgh, a place where I knew no one. Um, I'd met a few people, but I had no friends there. And uh, I just remember this was, I was, I was, I'd grown up Southern Baptist and was coming into the Anglican fold. I was about to get confirmed in the Church of England just before moving back. And, and I remember my, uh, my priest, uh, who was instructing me for confirmation, she, she came and, and she said, you know, I want to I pray for you, and I want to pray uh, something that would be a gift for you in your ongoing life with Jesus. What, what, what would that be if you had to sum it up in one word? And uh, this was one of those gatherings where you're in a room with a bunch of other confirmands, and uh, I, I sort of had the, the very sort of unpious thought that, I, you know, I did the math and saw it's going to get to me and all the good words are going to be taken uh, by then. Everyone will have asked for things like grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so I'm thinking, what, you know, what, what actually do I want to ask God for at this juncture in my life? You know, what, 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 what feels most urgent? What feels like something I need to bring to the Lord as, as a real genuine desire of my heart? And so I just said the word friendship. And uh, I remember my, my priest, you know, uh, anointed me with oil and prayed that, that God would surround me with friends. And, and it was very poignant because I knew I was about to leave a, a, a close community of friends and I was moving to a place where I had no friends. 
And uh, I had done this before. I, I lived a pretty transient life, like a lot of people my age. I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the so-called millennials. Uh, I'm 36 years old, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're pretty transient. I, I see some other millennials in the room, I think, and, and we're, we're pretty mobile. We like our autonomy. We like our freedom. And uh, I, was, I was feeling the strain of that. I was feeling I've done this several times, and I, I, I know that I'm hungry for friendship, but I also know that it's very complicated in our, our world. It's very complicated for my generation. And I don't think it's unique, uniquely complicated for my generation. I think it's complicated for every one of us right now who are living in, in Western cultures that are, that are so um, uh, sort of siloed in many ways. We're, we're so in love with our freedom and, and our ability to move whenever we want and to cut ties whenever we want. And we're part of the Facebook generation, right? So we actually have a verb for this now, unfriend. It's a new verb. And we can talk about unfriending someone. Um, so, so I, I think, I think we're, in a, we're in a place where we need to be thinking as Christians about friendship. We need to be thinking about our need for it. Um, as I was writing this little book I wrote on friendship, I wrote a, a, a sort of memoirish study of Christian friendship, and I, I began to read a lot about friendship, and I, be, I began to read about uh, the way we do it or don't do it in our culture now. And, and one of the most heartrending books I read was, was a book called Deep Secrets uh, by a sociologist at New York University named uh, Niobe Way. And uh, it's a very interesting book. This, this sociologist, she interviewed um, uh, non-white children from uh, ages 12 to 18. It was a longitudinal study. And she found that the younger boys were very uh, eloquent in the way they described their friendships. Uh, they talked about their, their best male friend is the person they confide everything in. Their, their best friend is someone they would turn to when, when the going gets tough and they can share their secrets with this person. But she found that, that as they, as they um, grew older, and, and by the way, she says research demonstrates that boys are just as likely as girls to disclose personal feelings to their same-sex friends, and they are just as talented as girls at being able to sense their friends' emotional states. Um, this is one thing she discovered in her research. But she also found that as these boys grew older, they became extremely reluctant to continue that effusive language. Uh, they, they, they used phrases like no homo. You know, they didn't want to be perceived as, as emotionally attached to their friend or, or needy in some way. They, they felt the need to sort of uh, portray a sort of macho independence. Um, and, and she views this as a crisis. She says, you know, there's this, there's this rich practice of friendship that these boys lose as they grow older. And, and you know, that was just one of the things uh, that, that, that I read that made me think, boy, we as Christians have a lot of work to do in this area. We, we, we were, we're encountering a cultural heart cry here uh, about friendship. Um, it's interesting, uh, the, the, some of the research I did reports that adult, white, heterosexual men have the fewest friends of any group in American society, according to sociologists. If, if a man does have a close confidant friend, three-quarters of the time it's a woman, interestingly. Uh, and often that person is the man's wife or girlfriend. Um, uh, asked in surveys about what they desire from their friendships, men are nevertheless just as likely as women to say they want intimacy. Uh, they don't just want uh, a guy to, to you know, hit the links with. They, they want someone that they can actually uh, talk about what's really going on in their lives. Uh, they, they want intimacy. Um, there's a, there's a poet and an artist named Carlos Andres Gomez, and he, uh, at, the, at the workshops and conferences he holds, he has his conference attendees write an I love you because list. 
And uh, he said it's remarkable uh, how people, you know, they initially balk, this is a bit cheesy, but then they embrace it. And, and, they, and he finds that, that people are eager to, to, you know, talk about how much their friends mean to them, how much they want friends and how much the, the few friends that they do have are really integral parts of their lives. And so, so I think we're in the, we're in the middle of a, of a culture that, on the one hand, is, is nervous about friendship, perhaps particularly men. We're not sure how to find it if we're, if we're, if we're a man in, in our society right now, but we want it. We're hungry for it. We know that it's important, and often we've tasted it. Often we've seen that this is a good gift of God, and it's something that, that we ought to want. Uh, it's not something to be ashamed of wanting, uh, but it's hard to come by. It can be hard to come by in our society. One of my uh, theologian friends, uh, Ben Myers, he's someone who's done a lot of thinking about friendship, and and he says, you know, a lot of us in Western culture are, are prone to believe certain myths about the world that make friendship that much harder for us. Uh, we're, we're prone to, book, to have certain um, views about who God is, who, who human beings are, what the world is, that, that are hindrances to actually cultivating friendship. And he names some of these in a really helpful way. And one, one of these he says is... <clears throat> We, as, as Westerners, tend to believe in the myth of sex. And what he means by that is, is the sort of Freudian idea that every close relationship at root is all about sex. It's why so many of us in our culture can't watch a film like The Lord of the Rings without immediately thinking, could Frodo and Sam be gay? Or we can't read a, 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 an account like the one in 1 Samuel about David and Jonathan without our minds immediately saying, well, is that a little gay? You know, we, we, ha- we have this idea that somehow sex is, is the, the hidden beating heart of things. You know, or, or, or we look at a, a close relationship between a man and a woman who are not married. And we say, well, they, they, they must be, you know, veering toward having an affair. Or, or, or they're, they're entering into dangerous territory. You know, we have these suspicions that really, at the end of the day, human intimacy, human closeness can be explained in terms of this myth of sex. Um, some of you will know the name Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch is a, uh, a writer. He now works for the Templeton Foundation. Um, he's a Christian, and uh, he, he, he describes his, his encounter with this myth of sex. He says, I have been blessed with a few friends. They've heard my confessions. They've pronounced my sins covered and forgotten. They've laid their hands on my shoulders and prayed for me in my darkest moments of doubt. No one has many friends like this. But I have just enough, barely enough, I would say. Several of these friends live in far-flung cities, and when travel takes me there, we seize the opportunity to enjoy one another's company. Often, we make time for a long dinner at a nice restaurant. And over 20 years of friendship with these men, we've become accustomed to knowing glances from our servers and our fellow diners. They see us laughing unrestrainedly, talking deeply, listening intently. With reactions of enthusiastic approval or mild discomfort, they let us know quite clearly, once in a while, in so many words, what they think they know about us. What they think they know is that we must be gay. In the cities where I live and travel, a display of open, honest love and affection between two men is linked, it seems, with the assumption that those two men must be romantically involved or at least attracted to one another. And here's how Crouch concludes. He says, today, in our culture, intimacy means sex, and sex means love. 
Our age has almost forgotten a love between brothers that is more than awkward slaps on the back, broing and duding our way through performances of emphatically non-homoerotic masculinity. Now, I'll be curious in the Q&A time later whether that resonates with you, but, but I, it resonates with me. You know, we, we as a culture, we, we know that all of us, whatever our sexual orientation, we all need close, non-romantic male friendship, but we're nervous about how that, that need or that desire may be perceived. We're, we're, we're a bit nervous about how others may talk about us if we, if we say, I'm really hungry for friendship. You know, uh, it's this myth of sex. It's this myth that somehow romance is the secret truth of every relationship. There's another myth uh, that, that Ben Myers mentions. It's the myth of family. And this is the myth that many of us have come to believe that the only way that we really matter in the world is to be paired up with someone and to be building this unit that for a few decades now we've called the nuclear family. Um, this has become a kind of fixture of, of, of a lot of modern Western cultures, that this is the way you matter. This is the way you escape loneliness. This is the way you, you have significance in the world. Are you, are you attached to someone in matrimony? You know, do, you, do you have children? Um, Carrie English, she's a, she's a, a journalist. She, she writes about this. Uh, she's a single woman, at least she was at the time she wrote this piece. And uh, she, she's reflecting on the fact that you know, we, we, we know in our culture how to celebrate family. I mean, in the Christian world, we have organizations called Focus on the Family and things like this. But, but we're not always sure how to celebrate friendship or even talk about friendship. And uh, she, she wrote this little column for the Boston Globe a few years ago about her experience of being a bridesmaid. And I want you to hear what she says. She says, in the vows that they wrote for each other, uh, the bride and the groom gushed about how lucky they were to have found someone who loved them unconditionally, someone who made any place home, someone who was their best friend. And I stood there under the flower-covered gazebo thinking, why not me? You're probably guessing that I had a crush on the groom or that I was feeling bitter because my boyfriend's priorities were his shot glass collection and his Wii, while my biological clock was ticking loudly enough to summon the bomb squad, or that I was feeling bad about spending Saturday nights with my cats. Actually, I was thinking something different. I was thinking... She loves me unconditionally. The house we shared always felt like home. And I thought we were best friends. And then she says this very poignantly. Surely I can't be the only person who feels like weddings are a little bit of a rejection. Two people announcing in public that they love each other more than they love you. Um, and she goes on. It's a humorous column. She's sort of poking fun at herself. But you can tell there's a grain of truth there. Um, she's recognizing that, you know, we know how to talk about family in our culture. We know how to celebrate that. We know how to, how to have ceremonies about that. We know how to have parish retreats about that. But how do we acknowledge this, this more subtle form of love? You know, this, this love that isn't marked by a, a special occasion necessarily, that isn't marked by a ceremony, that we're sometimes even reticent to bring up because we're not sure how it will make us seem in the eyes of others. How do we talk about that? How do we find that? How do we find that in an age where friending someone is as easy as clicking a mouse, or an unfriending someone can be done with the same gesture? So we need friendship. We know we need it. Uh, lots of cultural commentators are telling us we need it. Lots of people are reporting to sociologists on surveys that they want it. They're hungry for it. They come to church wanting it. They come to church looking for it. But what is it? What is friendship? 
this was, I have to say, one of the hardest parts of writing my book. I realized I probably need to give a definition of friendship. But what is it? You know, I, I, think, I think I can probably poll this room and we would all have sort of ideas about what it is. But, uh, you know, is there anything that Christianity would say about this? You know, what, what, what is this mysterious relationship that we are hungry for, but we're also not quite sure how to talk about and not quite sure how to pursue in our culture? I, I ran across a, a, a fascinating book uh, by an author named Jeffrey Greif. Uh, he wrote a book about male friendship called The Buddy System. And uh, he, he, he settled on uh, four different definitions of friendship. He said there, there are four different sort of shades of friendship that he wanted to talk about. And he gave them, uh, he chose rhyming words for them, which of course makes it easier to remember. But he said that uh, men um, seem to want to have must, trust, just, and rust friends. So your must friend is the friend that is the first one you would call if you have some earth-shaking news. You know, if, you, if you're going through a divorce or you're going into rehab or or you just got laid off, or you just got a huge promotion, and you want to celebrate, your must friend is the, is the first one you're going to dial when you pick up your cell phone. Uh, your, your trust friend is a slightly different category for Greif. Uh, he says a trust friend is someone you would trust and admire and enjoy, but not necessarily who would be in that sort of inner circle in the same way as the must friend. And I think we all have a um, a sort of tier where we, we realize there's some kind of murky middle. You know, I might not ask this person to go on vacation with me, but I love hanging out with them. You know, I love that they're in my life. I love that, that they're part of, part of my life. And then uh, just friends is the third category that Greif gives. He says just friends are casual acquaintances. You know, they, it's not necessarily to denigrate those, uh, but, but, you know, this is, this is someone that you might meet, you know, every couple months and, and watch a game together or or, uh, you know, uh, go play tennis together or something. They're just a friend, and that's okay. You haven't ever had an intimate conversation with them, and maybe you never will, but you're still glad that they're there in your life. Uh, they're, they're, they're part of what makes life enjoyable. And then he says, uh, we, we need rust friends, or we want rust friends. Rust friends are those where the friendship is rusty from long acquaintance. You know, we've, we've known this person since childhood. Maybe we went to elementary school with this person. We went to college with this person. They've seen us through the years. And we may, not, we may not have seen them for several months, but when we do get together, we can pick up right where we left off. You know, they're, they're, the friendship is, is rusty with age, and that's something to be grateful for. And, you know, I'm reading this book. I'm reading books like this where the authors are trying to parse friendship. They're trying to categorize friendship. And I'm thinking to myself, as a Christian who studies Scripture, you know, what, what, would, what would Christianity say about this? What would the gospel say about this? What is friendship for Christians? And uh, I found myself uh, kind of rummaging around, so to speak, in church history, kind of reading old saints and, and asking, you know, what, what is my faith? What is church history? What, is, what does my tradition say about friendship? And, and one of the classic little books that I came across that I've now, I've taught to my students several times is a, is a slim little book called Spiritual Friendship by this 12th century monk uh, named Aelred of Ribot. How about that name? Uh, he, he was the abbot of a, of a monastery very near where I did my doctoral work in England. So I, I actually got in my car and, and made a pilgrimage there to, to see this monastery. It's now sort of in ruins now, but it's still really beautiful. And it's sort of nestled in the green hills of Yorkshire there in northern England. But, but Aylred, um sort of had lived a life of, of sexual promiscuity and, and uh, sin and then uh, kind of showed up at the door of the monastery one day and said, I want to give my life to Christ. 
and he, he kind of rose through the ranks and eventually became abbot. He was the pastor of this monastery uh, at Rivo Abbey. And uh, Aylred, kind of, kind of uniquely in church history, I mean, we have, we have several different books that explore aspects of community and uh, intimacy, but we don't have many books at all from church history that specifically focus on friendship. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of the medieval writers uh, before Aylred were actually very suspicious of friendship. Uh, friendship, they felt, was something that could lead to sort of cliquish behavior. You know, if you're in a monastery and you've got two of the monks who become close friends with one another, what usually happens? They draw away from the community. So friendship can be a kind of dangerous thing. It can be something that disrupts uh, the closeness that the whole group has. But, but Elred, you know, he recognized those dangers, but he said this is, this is a, a form of human love that can be offered to God and can be uh, a means by which we come to know one another better in Christ. And uh, Elred wrote this little book, Spiritual Friendship, and, and he says that um, uh, spiritual friendship is a relationship of mutual goodwill and charity. And if you read the rest of the book, how he unpacks that, he says friendship is uniquely marked by trust and fidelity. It's a relationship of of mutual goodwill and charity marked by trust and fidelity. And I just want to think with you for a few minutes uh, about each of those four words, goodwill, charity, trust, and fidelity. Uh, Goodwill, it's a relationship of goodwill. It's, It's a relationship that's based on affection. I like you. Uh, you like me, you know. Let's 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 enjoy one another's company. Um, one, one of the fun things I, I grew up in a small town in Arkansas, and I, I remember um, on Saturday mornings I'd sometimes go with my dad on errands, and we'd drive by this one diner, and it had a huge you know, plate glass window in the front, and you could look in and just see uh, crowds of crowds of old men sitting there with the paper, sipping coffee, talking with each other. That's an image of friendship. You know, it's, there's goodwill there. There's affection there. You like one another. You like to be in one another's company. Aylred says in his book, we're not able to do that with everyone. Uh, God made us finite. Uh, God made us creatures who have limits. You know, we have to sleep a certain amount of time. We can't live everywhere in the world we'd like to live. We're, we're placed in particular places, and we have particular seasons, and we only have so many hours in the day. And Aylred said, you can't actually like everybody in that sense, but you can like a few and you can treasure those, those bonds of mutual goodwill, those bonds of mutual affection uh, that you have. He, but he also said it's a relationship of charity. Um, Elward believed that Christians are actually called to have charity toward everyone. So this isn't unique to friendship. We're actually called, I mean, this is one of the most distinctive Christian beliefs. Uh, we're called even to have charity toward those who hate us, toward our enemies. Uh, We're called to imitate a Lord who prayed from the cross as as he was nailed to the tree. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So so we're called to have charity for everyone. But but Elred said charity, nonetheless, it can be embodied in friendship. Um, One of the most beautiful quotes from his book, he says, The right kind of friendship between spiritual friends should begin in Christ, be maintained according to Christ, and have its end goal and value referred to Christ. Friendship is a a relationship where charity can be formed. Charity can be learned more and more. I think probably uh, all of us uh, in the room who are married could talk about marriage as a a kind of school of charity. I mean, um, I I remember reading a wonderful um, 
uh, marriage homily, a wedding homily written by Richard Hayes. And he says, you know, your marriage is actually the place where you will sometimes learn the meaning of the command, love your enemies, right? Because there's that, those, those times when you have to hang with one another in the tough times, when, when you may not even like the person who's sharing your bed necessarily. And friendship, Aylward thought, can be that kind of school of love. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you commit yourself to your friend, uh, even if you're single, even if you're not married, you can begin to learn that same kind of love. Uh, that same kind of love that, that overlooks faults, that forgives, that forgives even 70 times 7, uh, that forgives through thick and thin, that stands with someone in Christ and for the sake of Christ and in the name of Christ. Uh, thirdly, uh, Elred talks a lot in his book about trust. He says that the, the sort of distinguishing mark of friendship uh, is trust. I mean, think about, you know, we as Christians are called to love everyone, but there's no command that we necessarily trust everyone. You know, I may love the person who's nailing me to the cross. I may love the person who hates me, who's persecuting me, who's slandering me. In fact, I'm called to do that by Jesus. But that doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to feel that I can expose my, my deepest heart to that person. I can't trust them. I can't trust that there's going to be mutual affection and goodwill. But Elred says in friendship, the key uh, gift, the key distinction is there is trust. He says your friend is someone that you can disclose the very innermost secret of your heart to that person and trust that it will be held, trust that it will be heard, trust that it will be safe. Um, so Elred talks about the, the, the distinction of Christian friendship is this trust. And then finally, he mentions fidelity. Christian friends are those who don't run away when friendship becomes difficult. Uh, Christian friends are those who, you know, when, 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 the, when the marriage ends or, or the or the call from, from the jail comes that they need a pickup. Uh, the Christian friend doesn't write the person off. Uh, Christian friends are there through thick and thin. They're, 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 they're bonds of fidelity. Ilred writes in his book beautifully, Though challenged, though injured, though tossed into the flames, though nailed to a cross, a friend loves always. Proverbs 17, 17, he's alluding to there. So goodwill, charity, Trust and fidelity. I, I think that's a pretty good definition of friendship myself. And in the Q&A, we can engage on this a bit. But, but uh, if, if we know that we need friendship, and we've now got a little bit of a picture of what friendship is or what friendship could be, how in the world do we get it? How in the world do, do you, at a place like the Advent, uh, pursue this and nurture this and cultivate this? How can this be a community that comes to be known as a place of friendship? One of the uh, interesting things that I've learned as I've, as I've become a, uh, a New Testament professor is I've learned a lot about the ancient world, the ancient Greco-Roman society that the New Testament came to, to be written in. And uh, one of the most distinctive features of that society was the extreme hierarchy that people lived with. Uh, that there, there, there were certain human beings who were owned by other human beings. It's a system called slavery. There were certain human beings that were beholden to other human beings in a system of patron and client relationships. Uh, there were certain human beings who were the head of households and others were expected to submit. Uh, it was a society in which men were valued more than women. It was a society in which uh, certain races thanked God that they weren't born like other races. It was highly stratified, uh, highly, highly hierarchicalized. And right into the middle of that kind of culture, comes the Christian gospel. And I want to take you to a couple of places uh, in Paul's letters. I, I'm, I'm here at the Advent preaching on Romans this week, so my mind is in Paul's letters. 
And I want to just take us to a few places uh, in Paul where I think we see Paul giving us a hint and a clue of how we might be people who, who, who live in a different way, who embody a different way of being human, that, that, that pursues friendship and cultivates friendship in a way that tears down some of those hierarchies, uh, tears down some of those barriers that exist between human beings so that we can pursue friendship with one another. I want to take you to Galatians. Uh, Galatians is, of course, one of Paul's most um, impassioned letters. I I taught Galatians uh, two times, actually, in the last couple of years at Trinity. And uh, my students were were sort of provoked and and encouraged and and, and sort of, uh, I think, usefully unsettled by the Paul of Galatians. Paul is radical in Galatians. He's angry in Galatians. He's angry because he thinks the gospel is being distorted in Galatians. And uh, right in the middle of this sort of highly hierarchical, highly stratified uh, society in which certain humans lorded it over other humans, uh, Paul says something like this, Galatians 5, verse 5. Through the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. We set our hope on the fact that that when the day of judgment comes, we will be given the gift of righteousness. We will pass through the judgment because of Christ. And then look at what he says in verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working itself out in love. Now, it's hard for us to read that and feel how explosive it was in Paul's day. But it was. This is a world in which if you were uncircumcised, you were very grateful that you weren't born part of that crazy sect called Judaism. Or if you were circumcised, you were so grateful that you had the light and the truth of God, unlike those horrible, sinful pagans who are outside of Judaism. This is a world in which both groups look down on one another. There was a, as Paul writes elsewhere in his letters, there was a dividing wall of hostility. There was a, a great edifice that was constructed between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And those who were circumcised believed that their circumcision actually availed for something. It was worth something before God. It was their pedigree. It was what guaranteed that they would pass muster at the final judgment. It was was a point of pride. It was a point of social honor. It showed that they were uh, of of greater value than than those nasty, sinful pagans that they could point their finger at across the divide. For Paul, the crucifixion of Christ, the gift of Christ Jesus means that that dividing wall is no longer there. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails for anything anymore. It doesn't count for anything before God. It's a a banking term that Paul uses here. It it doesn't mean that your, your bank account is full if you're circumcised or that it's totally unfull if you're uncircumcised. What counts now is that Christ has come and gripped you You've been, you've been transformed. You've been, you've been baptized into a new identity. You've been clothed with Christ so that, so that Christ himself is, your, is the only thing that avails before God for you. And what that means, Paul says in verse 6, is that now the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of dependence and trust and rest in Christ that works itself out in love, in agape. Now think about how explosive that is in a highly hierarchical, highly patriarchal society in which people are, are relating to one another in these, in these asymmetrical bonds. 
Suddenly, now that the dividing wall is torn down, now that the ethnic distinction doesn't avail in the same way before, suddenly there's the possibility, more than the possibility, there's the propulsion, there's the engine that's pushing Christians together in a way they've never been together before, in a way that's bringing unity where there was no unity before. Look, look a couple chapters previously in Galatians, and there's a wonderful uh, sort of baptismal text. Uh, probably we should think of this being read over candidates for baptism. And at the very end of Galatians 3, in verse 27, Paul says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The imagery there is, is clothing imagery. Uh, Paul probably uh, didn't practice baptism this way, but we know that some of the early Christians actually practiced baptism with a giant pool that was sort of partially underground, and, and the candidates for baptism would actually take off their clothes. And so the Jews would take off whatever distinctively Jewish clothes they had, the, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks would take off whatever garb was appropriate to their culture, and all these garments would be left in a heap, and they would plunge into the water and emerge on the other side and be given an identical white robe. So on the other side of baptism, all these Christians now look the same. And the old distinctions that your previous clothing marked are left there on the side of the baptismal pool. And you're now exactly on the same footing with the person who formerly you might not have been able to have any relationship with. Uh, If you're a slave, you might have thought I could never befriend that person across the room. But now we're wearing the same robe. We're wearing the same Christ. We're clothed with Christ. And that's why Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want to take you to one more place uh, in Paul uh, before uh, I wrap up and open it up for some, for some discussion with you. If you would, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 15, is, is all about Paul's um, energetic pursuit of money. <laughs> Paul is seeking to raise money, not for himself, but for the poor in Jerusalem. And it's very interesting how this text works. Paul is writing to Gentiles. He's writing to those who aren't Jews themselves, primarily. And he's saying, I want to get you guys to be generous and give some money so that I can take that money to the poor in Jerusalem who are Jewish Christians. I want your abundance to supply their lack. And look at how Paul grounds this. Uh, This is what he's after. This is the behavior he wants. But he doesn't He doesn't place all the emphasis on the behavior. He places the emphasis on the gospel that he believes will produce the behavior. Look at verse 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Look again at chapter 9. Uh, verse 8. God is able to provide you, Corinthians, with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad. 
He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 11. You, Corinthians, will be enriched in every way for great generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul is not simply coming to the Corinthians and saying, become better friends with one another. Uh, go, and, go and serve the poor in Jerusalem through gritted teeth. No, Paul is directing their gaze to what they know to be the fundamental truth of their identity, which is that Christ, for their sake, left his father's throne, took on the form of a slave, went all the way into death, went all the way into the poverty of our existence, so that by his poverty, the wealth of grace and mercy might overflow to the Corinthians. Paul is saying, I think, when you grasp that, when you let that penetrate into your heart, when you know yourself loved in that way, when you know yourself uh, poured into by that Christ, there is a momentum of generosity that will be unleashed in your heart that will push you toward those saints in Jerusalem, that will push you toward the people you formerly might never have wanted anything to do with. I mean, who cares about Jerusalem if you're living in Corinth, right? Uh, Who cares about Jews if you're living a a happy pagan life? But suddenly, now, through the gospel, through the outpouring of divine generosity, a momentum is created in which the Corinthians are now moving toward, in deep relationship, bonds of fidelity, bonds of trust, those they formerly had no relationship with. Listen to how uh, John Barclay describes how radical this is in Paul's day. He says, rather than, than one side... Remember, uh, this is a a world in which sides are very important. Rather than one side being permanently the patron and the other side always the ever-grateful client, each is now the patron of the other. Or perhaps better, each is equally the client of a surplus-providing patron, God, who gives, however, not in order to receive back, but in order that grace be given on. What's in view here in 2 Corinthians 8 is a continuing project in which each party seeks to draw out the potential of the other, and both are committed to the construction of a community that is perpetually being remade and further developed. Neither party can flourish without the presence and contribution of the other. They are bound together by webs of need and of gift. I think that's a pretty good summary of the kind of relationships Paul sees working themselves out in light of what Christ has done on our behalf. So how do we get friendship? I think I want to leave you with a very simple answer, and we can tease out perhaps the implications and the practicalities of it, but it's a very simple answer, and it's look to Jesus. Uh, Maybe it's too simple, but I don't think so. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who crossed the greatest barrier of all, the barrier from divine riches to human poverty, the barrier from equality with God to the life of a slave. Look to that Jesus. Look at that generosity. Dwell on that generosity. Meditate on it. Let it seep into your bones. Let it it get into your bloodstream. Look at how Christ made himself one of us. And look at how it took him all the way to the cross. And look at how that crossing of the divide broke down every lesser divide. Look at how it canceled the chief distinction in the ancient world between Jew and Greek. 
Look at how it even overcame the distinction between male and female. Look at how it broke down hierarchies. Look at how it, how it created a new social thing called the church in which suddenly master and slave are kneeling together to receive communion in the same way. Look at that Christ. Dwell on him. Feed on him. Let him into your heart. Let him rearrange your priorities. Let him mess with your thinking. And then go out and be freed. Be unleashed for spiritual friendship. Be unleashed for those kinds of relationships of trust and goodwill and charity and fidelity that Aylred of Revo so beautifully talks about. Let's pray. Father, I pray here at the Advent that uh, this Christ, this generous, gift-giving Christ, would be the engine, the motivator, uh, the one who propels people here into relationships of deep fidelity, uh, mutual goodwill, mutual affection, uh, trust, uh, mutual reciprocal sharing of life. I pray that that would be unleashed more and more here at the Advent as, as the gospel is known and loved and cherished more and more. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Wes, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the church's role? Um, and, and maybe the church might be the, this might be the only place where you hear about it. Yeah. Uh, in a world where uh, intimacy, even when rightly defined, mm. Is, is avoided, and there are very few venues for it. So I heard on NPR the other day about a uh, very un- unscientific study in a college classroom mm. where a professor would take two students and have them face one another and say, okay, you have to have a conversation for five minutes. And they found it incredibly difficult. Huh. And then he said, huh. okay, now I want you to sit with your backs toward one another and get out your phones and text one another. And they found no difficulty with that at all. That's very interesting. And so even in the smallest of things, of having a a conversation with someone, now you don't even have to leave your house. We've got a ship that will bring you your groceries. (laughs) Instead of saying, hey, can you give me a ride? Don't worry, I'm an Uber. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Where does the church fit in? And it it may be one of the last bastions where this stuff is still seen as important. No, I think that's right. I mean, I I think, you know, um, I, I saw a billboard the other day. Someone posted on Instagram a billboard. Uh, I think it was in New York City, and the, the ad on the billboard was, uh, go to church in your pajamas. And if you looked at the fine print, it was, you can log on and go to this church without leaving the comforts of your home and your cup of coffee. And I thought, you know, that, that's, that's uh, you know, I, I get why they're doing that. I get that that's the trend, but that's actually, I think, it cuts against the grain of some of the values that we as Christians hold most dear, which is that we are not simply... Uh, brains on a stick, to quote Jamie Smith. We're not simply disembodied minds, but we, we believe that matter matters. You know, bodies matter. Embodiment matters. And, um, you know, church, church may be one of the last places where we not just say that, but we actually have a theology that undergirds that. You know, we, we believe that God made us uh, to be embodied. God made us for conversation. God made us to put away our phones. And so, um, you know, I think about a friend of mine who um, he and his wife uh, sort of recently um, sort of moved away from Christianity, kind of gave up Christian faith, and, and they moved to a new city, and uh, uh, they're lifelong churchgoers, both of them, and they said, you know, we're, we're, we're not sure how to make friends in this new city, because normally when we would have moved in the past, we'd go to church, you know, that's, that's ground zero for making friends, and so we're not sure how we do this, you know, do we join a book club, 
Do we go to a bar? You know, how does one make friends? And, and you know, hearing him describe that, it struck me that although I think we in the church feel this pressure, just like everybody else does, we actually still do things like this. You know, we still meet with one another. We still have Lenten lunches. And, and I, I, guess, I guess I hope that we, we, we hang on to those things and don't put up billboards about disembodied church. Yeah, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Because the church's response almost has always been, oh, especially towards singles, let's get all the singles together so that they can yeah. get married to one another. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. That, or even, even and especially the liturgical traditions, where the verticality of worship, that yeah. I'm there, it's meant to be quiet, don't talk to me, it's me and God, yeah. and it's about you know, that kind of communication rather than the horizontal nature. So how did, what does that look like in the life of a church mm. uh, from Sunday morning throughout the week? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think my best experiences of it have been um, when it has taken the form of being welcomed into people's lives as they are in their homes. So, I mean, I, I love going out to dinner as much as the next person, but, but, you know, when I think back to the times that have sort of offered me real solace in my own singleness and, and sort of offered me a, a, a way forward. I think of when people kind of had me into their messy lives. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to say, the real enemy of hospitality is perfectionism. It's, it's thinking that you've got to clean up your, your life, you've got to clean up your house, you've got to clean up your, your uh, conversational style in order to have people over, and you don't. You, 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 can, you can welcome people into your home uh, and and be imperfect as I as, <laughs> as, as, as I've learned. <laughs> but I just think you know if we could if we could if we could say you know we're, we're we're the kind of hospitality we're interested in this community is not just the coffee hour, and it's not just the the five minutes of conversation that may happen before a service. But we we actually want to be in each other's messy lives. You know I want to I want to be over when your when your kids are bouncing off the wall, uh, as well as well as when we're out for a nice cocktail, you know, somewhere at a restaurant. Yeah, aside um, from perfectionism, I mean, one of the things that I see is just a lack of thoughtfulness. Mm, mm. You know, not, you know, you kind of get married, you get caught up in the rhythm of things, and yeah. and you just don't see, and if, if there is somebody out there that's not yeah. married, it's almost always an afterthought, we should have them over for dinner. Right. And there's not an integration yeah. of the body of Christ into right. your own family life. Well, and that's part of why I'm, I'm, I know some people have found them to be really healthy and good, but I'm not a huge fan of singles groups myself. I mean, I'm, I'm single and I've never been part of one, never wanted to be part of one, uh, mainly because I want, I want that interaction across the generations. I want to interact with people who are married, people who are not married, people with kids, people without kids. Yeah, I want to. I want to feel that I'm part of the body of Christ, not part of a little segment of the body of Christ. And so, you know, I think I think the more single people can just be a part of regular church, you know, the less we will be invisible, as as you're saying, where we're we're not we're not thought of when the dinner party's being planned, or something like that. Well, good. Well, let's open it up uh, for folks that have questions. And I hope it's a discussion. I mean, I don't want to just answer questions. I want to hear from you as well, so. Dr. Hill. <laughs> I think about this a lot as a, a preacher. It's been an, on, on the forefront of my mind for a couple of years of the pervading problem that we feel of loneliness. Um, for, for people in past people, history. Yeah, just everybody. Everybody, everybody feels down. lonely and it's the big elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, and I'm always asking as I prepare sermons, 
how do you, how do I tether the proclamation of the gospel to address that need? And I often find that I have a hard time bridging that gap. And I mean, you did a great job sort of teaching us through that through the Pauline letters. But how do you how do you address loneliness? with the gospel through proclamation in that moment of preaching? What does that look like for you? Um, I, I guess, so the story comes to mind. I, and this, I'll have to think about how to relate this to preaching, because this isn't a story about preaching, but um, I, I remember in my 20s, mid-20s, I was feeling lonelier than I had ever felt before in my life. And, and, and it wasn't the kind of loneliness that uh, came because I had no friends. I actually did have friends. You know, I had close friends, but I was still just feeling like there's a there's a hunger in me that's not being quenched. You know that there's a there's a deep feeling of of kind of emotional isolation and, and aloneness. And um, you know the the thing that the thing that was most concerning. <laughs> I, I remember I was living in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time. And I walked in the library of Luther Seminary there. And they had a shelf of, of new arrivals. And I, I pulled a, a book off the shelf, and it was a new biography of Henry Nowlin. Some of you know he was a Catholic priest who died in 1996. He wrote a number of really beautiful books on spirituality. Uh, he wrote a great book on meditating on Rembrandt's uh, painting of the parable of the prodigal son. I would, I would highly recommend I think I saw it in the Advent bookstore today. It's a, it's a beautiful book, so, so get a hold of that book. But, but Nowlin, in this biography, Letters of his were quoted, journals of his were quoted, where he started talking about deep loneliness. And I suddenly felt, I feel understood for the first time in months. You know, here's, here's a, a priest who's, who's you know, um, knows the gospel and has, and has spent his life ministering the gospel, who's, who's confessing deep loneliness. And I, I guess I think, Zach, about the power of that experience was, I'm not alone in my loneliness. Like, I'm lonely, and I thought I was the only one feeling this way. And it turns out, here's a very popular, very uh, well-connected priest who has hundreds of admirers, dozens of close friends, and he feels exactly what I feel, because his words sound like they could have been taken right out of my journal. And so I, I, I guess, you know, thinking about that in relation to proclamation, I, I guess I would hope that, and, and again, I know preachers have it tough, because you don't want to be, you don't... You want to be self-disclosing, but not in a way that either, um, you know, just lets it all hang out or, or eclipses the gospel that you're trying to preach. But, but I, I, I think that the more we can sort of let people know, and this was, of course, now in book title, that, 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 that the healing we have to offer comes from our own uh, woundedness. You know, we're, we're proclaiming the gospel to you, not because we're going to dispense this now from on high, but because we're hungry for it, too. So if I'm going to preach to lonely people, you know, I need to be willing to talk about my own loneliness. I need to be willing to sort of disclose enough of that, I think, so that my hearers can know, well, he's, he's not just telling me what he thinks I might need to hear, but he's preaching a sermon that is actually relevant for himself as well. I don't know if that's at all what you had in mind, but that's, that's sort of what comes to mind to say that. But, um, this four times, I'm going to do it. Um, Zach, that really struck me that um, it seems like it is a, um, there's a way to proclaim that uh, over and over again. It begins with relationally 
we, we were created in God's image to be in a relationship with him and with one another. So there's a theme that starts to speak to why that loneliness is 100%. Um, it's like being OS positive, Rudolph positive. We all experience that. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from a, a, a God that created us to be in a relationship with him and with others. And when we are um, starved of that or deficient in that, uh, we feel it. And it's because we're out of sync with the way he created us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it seems to me that, um, that uh, friendship and love uh, is one of the few things that we can count on to carry on uh, into eternity forever. And so it's something that we can look forward to when, uh, when uh, everything that was wrong gets right, right again. What will be there is no loneliness. There'll be, uh, uh, there won't be any, uh, any loneliness from our relationship with our Creator or horizontally with, with others. And so it's almost like to me by bookends that, uh, uh, that presents a real fertile ground for it to be not the number one topic of every proclamation or sermon, but it certainly could be woven in because it's who we are and how we were made and where we're headed. Yeah. And that, th thanks for that. And that, you know, that makes me think of another thing that's been a comfort to me, and that is a strong eschatology. Exactly what you said. We're heading to a time when, you know, God is going to wipe every tear away. He's going to right every wrong. But that time is not yet. Uh, I mean, we have, we have the kingdom of God is really broken into the world, but it's not yet consummated. And so we live in this painful interim period between the already and the not yet. And it seems to me that that actually allows us to, to not have to offer any quick fixes or any platitudes or any, you know, pious, well, you're not really that lonely, so kind of fuck up. We don't have to say that in proclamation. We can actually be honest about lament that there is loneliness and there is grief in loneliness. And we can point people to, there is coming a day, and Lord, give us more and more foretaste of it, please. But there is coming a day when that is going to be gone, but that's not yet. And, and you know, I remember just the profound comfort of reading in Romans 8. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, the Christian life is a life of waiting. Uh, we wait eagerly for our redemption as sons and daughters, uh, the, the, our adoption as sons and daughters, rather, the redemption of our bodies. We wait inward, eagerly, and we groan inwardly. And I thought, wow. Paul can, Paul can describe the Christian life as a life of groaning, uh, a life of waiting, a life of yearning. That actually frees me to say, I don't have to get over this overnight. You know, I, don't, I don't have to find some quick fix to this loneliness. I can, I can feel this, and I can groan in this, and that doesn't mean I'm necessarily doing anything wrong as a Christian. Because I, I, I'm, I'm not in the kingdom yet. I'm not, I'm not, my body hasn't been raised from the dead yet. And so lament is, is actually a really important part of the Christian life. I know you agree with that, but just thought I'd, I'd say that. Yeah. Wes, what are some of your favorite movies or books or TV shows that exemplify the absence of friendship or, hmm. or friendship? Hmm. Um, I mean, The Lord of the Rings, I've got to say that, right? That's, that's such a beautiful portrayal of friendship. Um, Yeah, I mean, so what's, what's coming to mind is a play. I wish it were a TV show or a movie, but there's a play by um, the uh, guy who wrote the Shakespeare in Love movie, Tom Stoppard. Uh, I don't know if any of you know his work, but he, he wrote this play about uh, the life of um, the poet A.E. Housman, 
a British poet. And um, the, the play's called The Invention of Love. I can't remember if I said that. But um, in, in this play, he imagines uh, a, a young 20-something houseman having a conversation with an older uh, post-mortem houseman. So, so the, it's the same person, but they're talking at two different points of their lives. And, and the young houseman is, is same-sex attracted. He's, he's, he's desperate for a relationship. And he, and he says to, the, to the, his older self, he says, you know, I, just, I just want friendship. I just, I just want to be able to, to lay down my life for someone. I want to have that degree of closeness with someone where we're, we're like comrades in arms. And the older version is, is very cynical. He, he says, well, you know, nobody wants that in our world. Everybody wants romance. And so if you're a young, you know, homosexual man, same-sex attracted man, you, you, your, your best chance of getting that is to find a, a same-sex partner. And that, to me, was just profoundly poignant because, you know, here, here's, a, here's a young person in this play saying, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with my sexuality, but I do know that I need friendship. And the older version has, has pinned all of his hope on a sexual romantic connection and said, well, friendship, good if you can get it, but who knows if you can get it. You know, the one thing you can go after in this world is sex. And I just feel like as a Christian, that's so poignant to me because we actually don't believe that. We don't believe that the only place to find genuine love and intimacy is in sex. I mean, we worship a Savior who, was, who lived his life without sex. And, I mean, read the pages of the Gospels. He was the most alive. He was the most, uh, I mean, as, as, as one of my friends says, he was the life of every party he went to. You know, he was, he was not a prude. He was not uh, withdrawn. He was relational. He was, he was, he was intimate with people. He had his, his Peter, James, and John, but he had others. He had Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he was a dynamically intimate man, and he lived his life without sex. And, and so, so that's the guy we worship, and that, that just reconfigures how we put you know, sexual expression in terms of the hierarchy of values that we have. I mean, sex is a good gift of God, and we need to receive it as such, you know, welcome it as such, but it, it's not essential to human flourishing. You don't have to be having sex to be a fully alive, relationally connected person. So anyway, I'll give it some thought on TV shows and movies, though. But, but that play, The Invention of Love, by Tom Stoppard, is, is, is really poignant. Would it be a stretch to say if your relationship with someone doesn't have prices that are part of it, that it's based on items? That's, that's certainly what Aylward says. I mean, yeah, he, 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 he very interestingly in his, in his book, he says, you know, people can have uh, what he calls carnal friendships, which are all about you know, relationships where you're both enjoying, you know, partying in the same places and pursuing the same sort of lustful uh, goods. Or you can have a worldly friendship, which is a friendship that's based on greed. It's based on, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, we're going to climb the ladder together. But he says both of those are counterfeits. They look like friendship, but they're actually not the genuine article. Uh, real friendship is, is this mingling of souls in Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's where we share the same Holy Spirit and can actually trust one another with our secrets. And, and Elwood says, you know, if you're outside of Christ, you can approximate that. But, but ultimately, you know, your, your, your life is, it's, it's without the truth. It's without the light of the world at, at its heart. So, yeah, Elwood I, I, would certainly agree. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked a lot about, um, you use the analogy of, of in baptism, that you have different clothes and um, when you're baptized, you put on it. Dividing wall hostilities broke down. And I think a lot about uh, racial reconciliation. Yeah. And uh, 
to abandon their blackness. Right. Um, how do we wrestle with uh, our identity presently? Um, I am a white straight man. Yeah. Um, and I am a Christian. Can you say those in tandem? Are they in opposition to each other? What's the relationship? Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent question. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it strikes me. I, I, I'm teaching Romans right now, and it, it strikes me that Paul will say things like, um, you know, a, a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. So he, he, he focuses on, um, you know, the, the centerpiece of Christian identity is the work of the spirit in cleansing the heart through Christ. But then he can turn right around and say in Romans 9 to 11 that he holds out special eschatological hope for the people of Israel, and he doesn't want Gentiles to become arrogant toward the Jewish branches that were broken off. So, in other words, Paul is very aware that in this Roman congregation, there are Jews and there are Gentiles, and in Christ, God has made those into one family, but those, those ethnic cultural distinctions are not simply erased, and the reason is they have an ongoing influence in the community. You know, the, 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 fact, that, the fact that there are Gentiles who are tempted to look down on Jews because they're Jews shows that Paul still has to address Gentiles as Gentiles. And the fact that there are Jews who are tempted to say, well, who are these Johnny-come-lately Gentiles who are getting grafted into our olive tree? What's that about? That shows Paul has to address the distinctive situation of Jewish arrogance and pride. So it seems to me that in Christ, um, you know, ultimately, our... The, the, the significance of these distinctions in terms of our fellowship with one another are done away with. There is no spiritual or theological barrier between me and a Jewish Christian. We've been made one in Christ. But there may well be um, cultural habits and attitudes that are still part of the old me, that are, that are rearing up again, you know, that are, that are, that are festering in the community and causing resentment. And those can't just be, those can't be ignored by saying, well, we all have the same baptismal clothes, let's just get over it. No, we have to talk about those distinctive um, cultures and, and attitudes and, and habits that, that are hindering the living into of this community. I mean, what I tell my students, and this is not at all original of me, every single Pauline scholar I've ever read says the same thing. Paul's whole theology is built on the fact that the the indicative, scholars call it, of who we are in Jesus has to be worked out in terms of the living of life with the imperative. So Paul, Paul has these grand statements that this is who you are in Christ. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've been raised to new life in Christ. That's fundamentally who you are. But we all, insofar as we live out uh, our lives in between the already and the not yet, we the old Adam comes, comes rare into life again, over and over again. And we're tempted to say, well, yeah, Paul, I know you said I'm risen with Christ, but I really don't like this Jewish person over here because I'm a Gentile. Or I really don't care for this Greek guy over here because I'm a Jew. You know, that, that's, that's the old pattern of, of, of resentment and, and hierarchy creeping back in. And so this indicative of who we fundamentally are through our baptism has to be worked out. It has to be again and again we come back to I'm one in Christ and therefore I can now live in a different way. I'm called to live in a different way. I'm, I'm, I'm ushered into a, a different way of being human that I have to work out in actual, messy, sinful human community. 
So, um, I mean, I feel the force of your question because I, I sometimes encounter Christians who say, well, you know, Wes, why do you talk so much about same-sex attraction and, um, you know, your whole experience of that? Surely that doesn't matter anymore because you're in Christ. And there's a, there's a fundamental sense in which that's true. I am in Christ. But this is still a sort of, um, it, it still matters when, you know, gay people are, are, are being bullied on, on, on school campuses. It still matters when, um, you know, people who are perceived as being too effeminate are, are shunned at the coffee hour at church. You know, we still have to talk about these human distinctions. Does that make sense? Does that, does that help at all? Sorry, I went on kind of long there. One last question? <laughs> yeah, right, right here. Uh, one of the parts of your book that really stood out to me is when you talked about a time in church history when men would make vows yeah. to one another. Yeah. Three Orthodox men in a ceremony. Yeah. And I thought it was so beautiful and also being very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So while I imagine those churches are going to have a friendship service right. where people make vows of friendship to one another, what practices can the church incorporate into its life that will give that robust vision of friendship that's grounded in commitment? Yeah. You know, the thing the thing that often blesses me is when people <clears throat> so I, I I I think a lot of single people dread going into things like family Thanksgiving. Because we always know we're going to get the same question. So, have you met anyone this year? You know, <laughs> is this the year? And and you just dread having that conversation over and over again. You know, and um, if if we can if we can be mindful that, I mean, a romantic partner could well be the most significant person in someone's life. And I know a lot of couples for whom that's true. But there are a lot of single people uh, for whom that's not true. For whom the most important person in their life may be their best friend. And you don't have to have a public ceremony in order to, in order to ask about their friend. Uh, my friend Eve tells about she had a best friend uh, that she would regularly bring to family Thanksgiving. And her older sister uh, just didn't, didn't make any fanfare about it, didn't, didn't make a big deal, but she always included <coughs> that friend in the family Thanksgiving photo. And she would always make sure to ask, you know, is that friend coming for Thanksgiving this year? And to my friend Eve, that sig- and Eve is single, that signaled, okay, my family is recognizing that, um, you know, the, 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 the thing they might want to ask me about my romantic life is not necessarily the most important relationship in my life. You know, my, my friend is actually the most important relationship in my life. And they're, they're acknowledging that by inviting her to Thanksgiving, taking the photo uh, with her at Thanksgiving. I mean, I, I think little things like that go a long way. You know, when I, when I bump into someone uh, that I haven't seen in a while and, and and instead of having that awkward conversation about, you know, have you met anyone, uh, they say, well, how are your housemates? Actually, one of my housemates is here tonight, Aiden, which is a, a, a real joy. And uh, I, I, yeah, you know, Aiden and Mel and his wife and their daughter are actually the most significant friends in my life. And so, you know, when you can, when you can, um, when you can acknowledge that uh, about your friends, I think that's huge. I think that's a big, a big way of blessing a single person, in my experience. Um, Maybe we can chat more uh, later about other practices, but just just being being aware that um, uh, you know that there are ways to signal to people that you care about their married lives, you care about their parenting lives, you care about their uh, romantic lives if they're if they're pursuing a romantic relationship. All those things are important, but you also care about their friendships, and you care enough to ask, or you care enough to to do things that would actually support their friendships, like inviting them over for a Thanksgiving uh, meal with their friend. 
Uh, again, tiny little gestures, but hopefully they can make a difference in our in our culture. So thank you guys so much. Well, Wes is going to hang out a little bit if you want to yeah, come up and, absolutely. Uh, and then ask some questions. Well, let's have a word of prayer for you and your ministry and great. for tonight before we get out of here. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing Wes to us and the witness that he is uh, for uh, your gospel. And Lord, uh, how um, you have used him to speak to us tonight. Lord, that you would open our eyes and that we would uh, have the barriers removed uh, to intimacy uh, and that we would reach out in love uh, to others and not be so self-consumed. And Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for the precious gift of your son, and we pray uh, that uh, we would look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, uh, for uh, he is our good shepherd, and we pray that we would have the courage uh, to hear his voice and to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.